Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We're Clay, Nick, and Doug. Hello! <laughs> and we are trying to become better Malapopo players, leveling up ourselves and hopefully leveling up others as well. We do that by interviewing top third players, normally from the Lone Star Conference, but sometimes with special guests, like tonight, uh, playing in Malapopo tournaments across the U.S. We're not trying to capture their entire jer- tournament journey here. We want to take an in-depth look at a single game from each of our guests, what were key decisions they made before the game and during the game? And now looking back at the game, what were the things that they learned and that they can pass on to others? Our basic format is to interview the guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament, when it's all fresh in their minds and we can get some good cross flow between the guests. But rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Today we're speaking with Ambrose and Andre, who came in third and first respectively at the Finnish Gamble Malifaux GT, held the 28th and 29th of January at the Las Vegas Open. And we're going to be releasing these as episodes 3A and 3B. So, all right, let's get going here with Ambrose. So, yo, uh, yo so uh, icebreaker question for this episode. Um, what is your favorite minion in the game and why? Um, so I am a big fan of Gigants. Um, Euripides is probably my favorite master overall. Um, and those guys, they, they nail the flavor of that crew. They're just stompy. The sculpts are awesome. Um, and then that stat six gun on a cheap minion with a built-in push and like stunning strike trigger is just one of the rudest, um attacks that you can make against your opponent and you can you know add some blasts if you want push people back disrupt their disrupt their action economy for the cheap cheap price of six soul stones with hard to kill absolutely love everything about them i need to get euripides to the table more often yes i i i have had like my favorite euripides lists hire three gigants it's just um yeah it's great love them all gigants all the time no Uh that is Fantastic. So uh, we will certainly get into it, but was there ever any inclination of you bringing Neverborn or maybe just Solo and Euripides for this? Um, I think that um, playing uh, marker-based masters in the modern Malifaux experience is a trap um, and you shouldn't do it. And so Euripides is on the shelf. I, I know your feelings, Doug, um, but uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my um, bring marker removal, not marker synergy. Um, is my mantra and um, uh, so let's see probably like October or so of last year um, I started working with my locals about like getting better and improving and and I my my big thing to them is you know pick something to get good at and put in your reps um, get good at one thing while I was continuing to say i'm going to start playing guild i'm going to start playing guild and then every time i had a tough matchup against like a serious opponent or a pool that i wasn't familiar with i just like audible back to titania um and so i started getting a lot of shit for that and um and so i made a commitment both to my 
my crew up here and, and to myself to just bite the bullet and stop playing Neverborn. Um, so it was never really on the table for, for LVO for that reason. Okay. Much, much as it would have been nice and much as yeah. we're looking forward to getting smashed by a, a, a gigant by if we ever get to play face to face. So <laughs> casual game. Awesome. Yes. No, that's great. Yeah. Oh, Hey, you know, something that we, we didn't do that we, we normally do. Hey, Ambrose. Hi. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so I am. I've been playing Malifaux since roughly the start of third edition. Um, got big into um, Vassal when COVID hit, and I've been helping organize the Malifaux World Series um, there online, um, which is now in its third series. I think that's at this point my biggest claim to fame other than um you know beating the play with clocks drum loudly and proudly um yeah so based out of the pacific northwest uh bellingham washington and working to grow the local meta here out of coming out of covid but um malifo has been my jam these past couple years um in large part thanks to being able to keep playing on vassal no, that is fantastic. So, well, and welcome to it and welcome to Students of Conflict here tonight. Thank you. So, all right, um, shift into this uh, LVO tournament. Um, what round are you going to be talking about and why? What's the what's the lessons that uh, we pulled out of the round that you're going to be talking about? Um, I ended up going with my round five, um, and this was into, um, I hope I get Joel's name right. It was Joel Mousseau, um, and uh, this was... Round five into his Damien, uh, Damien one aspirant. And it, it felt like my most earned win. Um, this was kind of like after a decent run, but like a couple of points and just about every game that felt like I had make some, made some mistakes and sort of like stumbled through to an okay place. Um, but this was the game that felt like I was able to sort of take some learnings from all of those previous mistakes, um, learn from, getting curb stomped by Andre with Damien to the game before, um, and then take some of that directly into, you know, the, the next Damien pairing and, and apply some of that knowledge and, and come out with the win. I'm glad I could level up your game right then. It, it, I honestly think it helped. I'm not sure I could have won the psychological game of going into Damien without first losing to Damien. So in, in that way, it was, yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Got used to the, to the ice cold waters of Damien. Uh -huh. were able to acclimate for the next game. Got it. Well, it, it, and, and then it was like, it was like terror. And then he locked in with aspirant and I was like, well, I just, I just faced, um, big daddy bald version with, a you know, um i think i could deal with baby damien after that and and sure enough you know spoiler alert you did but I, I, I uh, it off. Um, i've since learned exactly how like baby damien can be terrifying but that's a tale for another podcast <laughs> what well, we uh on the, the last episode i guess it was uh 2c we you know we actually talked the same matchup i'm realizing because it was jonathan's damien one versus trey's Harold won as well. Go back and listen to that. Like, subscribe, hit the buttons, do the things. Hey! Exactly. So, but, uh, but moving on. So what was the uh, biggest lesson? Kind of what was the biggest, maybe, theme coming out of this game? Um, I 
I felt pretty good um, coming out of deployment um, because the way we were, were deployed, my left flank was pretty clear. Um, Joel had a um, dabbler and a gammon on the left side. And I was able to sort of keep my sappers over there and not worry about them. Um, when push came to shove, like sappers felt like they could, even if he went aggro with those two minions, my sappers were going to come out on top. Um, so that felt very safe. And I was able to kind of dictate the rest of the engagement as a, a pretty sort of front to back fight. Um, and I planted my bubble of Kingswall, Watson, Tall nonsense right on the edge of a forest that was in between the two central markers for, for covert ops. And I think um, holding that line for as long as possible, and I, I played a pretty patient game, um, delaying some of my scoring until I was in a controlling position positionally. And that, um, I think that that definitely de defined the game. Um, at, at the end, it, it was definitely a thing that having control over initiative in the final turn was a big swing in points for me. Um, and so that was definitely one of the dictating factors for the, the win. Um, but part of that was being able to play a patient game, holding that strong fortress in the center until I could come out of the bubble, score some points, and then you know, execute with a strong hand um, to be able to control initiative and, and take the game. No, that's cool. And that you know, patience is not something that we see necessarily a ton of uh, in the Texas meta. Uh, no. So, I'm, 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 Aggressive in Texas? That's unheard yeah. of. And so I'm super interested in how that's uh, going to play out as we talk through this game. And uh, because it is a slightly different style and it, and it clearly worked. And so I think that's going to be that's going to be really interesting. So we already talked a little bit about how going into this tournament, you were like, as much as you love Neverborn, as much as you'd love to be playing Euripides and uh, and uh, Titania, that you'd kind of shifted away from that and had gone mm -hmm. guild. But kind of why guild and and uh, uh before the tournament, what, what led you to, to solo toll for this whole tournament? I think uh, Guild has just always kind of been in the back of my mind as something I, I enjoy. Um, I've been a, a fan of Nelly for a long time. I've been a fan of Dashiell. Um, you know, I've had Sonya in my pocket as something to, to play for, for, for fun for, for a long time. So it's, it's just been my sort of second fa favorite faction for, for a long while. And then in, in terms of, of Tull um, and soloing Tull, um, it, it definitely came down to once I started seeing the, the pools that were there and planning against the pools and planning for for packing, um, I you know recognized that Tull could do everything. Um, uh, Doug approved my standee proxies um, a couple weeks ahead of time. And at, at that point, it was like, well, I could bring Dashiell for, the, for a couple of these pools to have a more killing-focused master, but um, I could also just do that with Tull and not have to pack any real models. <laughs> um, and so that was, that was the answer. <laughs> yeah, those standees did not take up very much space at all. No, no, they pack very light. But, but you you also did make them look very good. I mean, you gave you gave me like a, a, a thumbs up seal of approval, like these look good. And, and that was I, that that feels I know you're a very detail oriented person. You care very much about the appearance of your game of the game. So like um, having that stamp of approval from you 
made me feel good about bringing them, right? I, I don't think I was giving anybody a bad play experience with the proxies I brought. Oh, yeah. They, they honestly, uh, you told me what they were going to look like ahead of time. And then when I saw the actual finished product, I'm like, okay, that exceeded expectations. So if you send me the pictures of that, we'll put them in the show notes because I can do things like sure. that. Yeah, I've got, we can share. Yeah, no, please put those in the show notes. And which reminds me also that you were talking about the map and the deployment earlier. And I wanted to mention that for anybody who's listening, that we do have a link to the map in the show notes. And so you can pull that up as well. Uh, if you're listening and going like, what were we talking about on the deployment earlier? So, but no, that, that made great sense. Now, have you traveled to bunches of tournaments? Is LVO a regular thing for you? Is, is packing normally more of a consideration? And I asked that because we did have a question about travel to convention and, and kind of the, what do I pack challenge? And so was that a major consideration for you or always a consideration or hardly ever? Cause this is, yeah. What's, what's your traveling background here? So far, like LVO has been my one travel tournament and i'm i'm hopefully changing that up this year a little bit i'm gonna go up to calgary for an event uh in april and i'm hopefully coming to texas in october um fingers crossed i'm just an anxious traveler so anything i can do to like make my travel experience easier is something i'm gonna latch on um latch on to and um i i traveled with uh let's see when i when i did lvo last year i brought just dreamer and it was kind of the same thing where i was like i know dreamer can do every pool and that means i only have to pack one thing and so yeah let's go with that (laughs) (laughs) Um, sounds like a great plan so all right we kind of talked earlier on the various masters that you'd looked at uh as you were coming into this within guild that toll could do everything was it was it kind of toll as the newest hotness did you get in a bunch of reps before you came and, and you were like oh no this is absolutely the guy or what what why toll as opposed to one of the other masters that you mentioned i think that toll is this is kind of going to get go into the question that um uh, personal glitch gave us if if that's okay too if i yeah please do expand on that here um so um i don't like going to tournaments with stuff that i'm not like at least 15 games deep into um so when i and, and when toll came out with with full models and i you know had the idea that i could potentially bring him to lvo um part of it was um knowing i you know going into a place where the the hotness is there knowing that damien's an option um i didn't really feel like nelly dashel had best chances into that sort of game and so i did want to add something else to my um to my roster after about five games of tall i was actually thinking that in those first five games he felt too difficult to execute on properly and uh i wasn't feeling i wasn't feeling the sauce so i I think there are some things in in tall's kit that are that are overtuned and are kind of a, a new hotness sort of feel to it um but i was also just feeling like i like the i like the totems i like the artillery feel to it it felt cool um so i was i kind of hit that that learning wall of this isn't as good as i was hoping it was but i'm enjoying it and so i pushed through um and then i was able to find and, and get to a point where like once i you know, focused on Tull specifically as where my damage is coming from and everything else is just kind of churning through resource generation, grinding up the field a little bit, creating an impenetrable wall that can't be interacted with. 
Um, <laughs> oh, that wall. Once I figured out that, um, things started clicking a little bit more. Um. Future Doug here. Due to some weird technical issues, parts of Andre's audio weren't recorded. At this point, Andre had asked a question of Ambrose regarding how they had previously discussed adding a guild mage to his crew and how that affected how Toll worked for him. I wasn't, um, I wasn't using guild mage to focus him up until you and I had a conversation and it was around that three or four game mark, um, that we were talking about that. And so just kind of throwing, throwing shots in without the ability to consistently spike damage wasn't swinging the game enough. Right. And Watson, you know, his, his melee attack can be super scary, but like, when I tried to use that as a source of damage, he ended up in a position where he would die. Um, and then losing Watson and in particular losing warning growl meant that everything else starts collapsing that much faster. And, and outside of those like defensive auras from Watson and from King's wall, um, the crew isn't that tough. There's a lot of armor in there, but it's armor one and most things can deal with armor one. And as um, as powerful of a tool as Heat of Battle is, um, I think that the the need to have a Scheme Marker, Assault Marker, or King's Wall there are, are real restrictions to that ability. Um, and of course, you need a card for it, which there's plenty of tools to pick those up, but that can be interfered with either killing the totems, killing the sappers, whatever card draw you're, you're bringing. And um, so, so that positional restriction and card restriction does sort of... Um, it, it makes heat of battle a little bit more. Um, it, it needs to be a little more focused than just I'm getting another free action on all of my models all the time, and and so transitioning to Tull is my damage dealer. I'm going to bloody your nose as soon as possible. Focus him up with with the transmutation trick. Um, try and spike seven damage into something important right off the bat. That buys me some breathing room. Now I move my bubble up the board. You can't mess with it because it's King's Wall, Watson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I sort of have the space to just sort of throw attacks in. And now I'm going to win on attrition. You know, after that big punch of, of hurting something important, um, I want my the rest of my crew to waste your actions while I throw attacks away, putting my cards into only the stuff that really matters, right? If I've got 113 at that point, it can be an important attack from Tall. It can be an, usually just an important attack from Tall, right? He's the one who's, who's doing the major plays there and everyone else is kind of supporting to just slow the enemy down. And then, you know, there is a turning point and Luisa can explode out of the bubble, score you three points, win you the game. So, quick question for you. Um, you were mentioning uh, the transmutation trick. So, I'm looking at the guild mage there with the um, the transmutation attack there. What are you doing to, you know, get that up and humming? Because, obviously, it looks like he has to have some kind of a condition on him to transmute into uh, the focus there. So, what are you doing to get him conditioned and then... Uh, focused off of that. Yeah, I'm smacking him with Elisa. Um, and and goes, uh, she's got a min one attack, which is pretty sweet, um, that hands out injured. And um, and then transmute it. Uh, you could also do it with um, Rocketeers, who can hand out burning, or Hexbows, who also hand out burning. But um, I haven't played a ton with either of those models, because Elisa's gotten the job done without them. 
Got it. That is really, really slick. So it's not my tech. This is Andre's tech. <laughs> Just yeah, I want you still. all to know. <laughs> you got a little bit of damage on him, but then you're using yeah. the heels off of the uh, mage to kind of negate. Because I mean, obviously, you're plinking him for one with Luisa, and then to get that transmutation, you do have to damage him, which is min two. So you're yeah. you are doing three damage to him to get him one focus. But then I'm assuming you're. It'll be two. Well, what do you get? How are you getting the two focus on them then? Yeah, or could you just talk us through that? Yeah, so uh, I, I do, I, you, I do try and make this happen once I guarantee to have the tome. But like finding the tome is 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 really really easy. So if I if I'm worried about finding the tome, I will punch Watson with Wall to get some more cards in the discard pile, um, and then Wall will walk up, drop a scheme marker, heat of battle. And then heal that damage off. So like that, that is just free cycle through your your card, um, and it's it's kind of gross. Then punch Tull twice with Louisa. Um, okay. He's going to get injured. He's going to get injured too. Got it. And if if you've done it right, she can place after that attack. So she should be landing within two inches of King's Wall or the scheme marker that he dropped. So she's also going to heat of battle. Um, and I'm happy to discard a six there to just heal Tull up too um, right at that point. Um, so the, the danger at that point is like your master has too injured on him maybe a damage or two if you accidentally spiked a moderate which happens more often than you think um it's on four cards it's triple negs and it still happens all the time her moderate is three so you are getting through that lead line mm-hmm. code a little bit there yep. okay yeah and uh so at that point you're gonna have to activate with um probably with a uh one of your totems to pick up a tome from your discard pile um but then if you're worried about it, they're going to walk and heal tall back up to full. Um, and then your guild mage is going to go transmute. I've done it where if I thought he was in danger, I just rule of law there to cycle a card or to, to drop a card to, to heal tall back up to full. But if I can be patient, then I'll let guild mage focus and, and heal him up on a later heat of battle. Um, so by the time, by the time I go and, into engage anything or move tall forward at all he's at full health he has two focus um and i usually still have five, like six cards five or six cards in hand thanks to um resupply um but some of them are definitely weeks yeah but you just need that weak tome so right exactly so very nice yeah so yeah so thanks for talking us through all that and we will cycle back here and uh and kind of jump into the the list and some of the actual pregame stuff just to wrap up on before the tournament, actually, any other comments from you or questions from from anybody else? Uh, kind of before we actually launch into the the before the start of the game, and we'll we'll dive into the the list into into a little more detail here. So when we've previously chatted with other players uh, about Harold Tull, they have talked up and down about how much they love Rocketeers, and you didn't seem to have any in this crew. Uh, I brought them zero times. Is that true? Yeah, I brought them zero times in this tournament. Oh, wow. That's unexpected based off of uh, what I've heard from other guild players. Yeah, like the other guild players love the Rocketeers. They cannot get enough of the Rocketeers. This is is touching on a couple of other things that are are like kind of tournament-wide specific, but like um, this this selection of pools um to me felt very much focused on 
Um, and this is a Gaining Grounds 3 problem, right? Gaining Grounds 3 very much rewards the pe- person who wins on attrition. Um, and that could be um, just straight up murder, um, or it could be kind of what I did here, which is like, I'm going to grind up and your resources aren't going to um, match my extra actions um, and always having the low target numbers that I want. And so I think that it's just a safer strategy to hold that line and play patiently when you have that strong of a bubble and when the objectives are all so attrition focused. I don't need to race a rocketeer across to try and like spread them out and risk losing you know, two, two, four, six actions from a model dying early. Um, Whereas like if that Rocketeer is instead one of my sappers that hangs out close to my bubble and like draws me cards and, you know, gets a couple of heat of battles um, to get an extra focus or drop an extra scheme marker, you know, then I'm, then I'm picking up advantage on this attrition game because of those extra actions that I'm getting. It's safe. I'm not losing a model. Instead, I'm gaining two extra heat of battle actions. And I think it just, it just, the, the packet um, and the, the gaining grounds doesn't support the risk of running out to score. There's plenty of stuff that would be happy to run out and, and eat a rocketeer. They're not durable. Um, I've played them and they're fun, right? Like you could do a breakthrough just by itself. Um, and I know that that's not something that Guild has had, but like Guild's identity is Bloodline Coat, right? And so playing into the strength of your faction is bueno. Yeah, that makes great sense. So uh, so shift into this specific game. The, uh, the pool um, uh, and all of this for listeners is in the show notes as well, but uh, standard deployment and covert um, and then schemes of vendetta, sabotage, spread them out, set the trap, and secret meetup. And so, could you talk to your list as you're as you're looking at that particular pool? Uh, and then, certainly, you you know by this point that uh, that you're facing Arcanists. Um, mm-hmm. What are you looking at? And uh, and then, I guess by this point, you know that you're tall, and you know that it's going to be Damian one. Yeah. And so, yeah. What what have you got for a list here? So, and I knew um, Joel was soloing Damien and he was flipping between both versions. But so I, as soon as I paired up, you know, I, I knew that, okay, this is another Damien match. So I, I, I came Yay! to the pairing. Yeah, I was so stoked. Back to back. Ooh, everyone loves <laughs> Excellent. that. Excellent. This is so great. And there was definitely some grumbling about paying for airfare for this bullshit experience, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Uh, so I, I knew that going into it, and I, I actually did have a dead silent and rocketeers list um, that I was thinking of trying for this, where I was going to try and get a bunch of scheme markers down and be super durable with dead silent and um, mess up your positioning, score some set the trap, score some secret meetup, do that kind of kind of thing. Um, but as soon as I saw the that it was going to be Damien again, I just kind of threw that out the window. Um, I have less reps with Dead Silent, and I think that he has a very high skill ceiling, but is also kind of what I what I just said, right? He's not playing to that guild game plan that I think is like play to the strengths of Leadline Coat. Um, I don't think he quite does that, and I don't have the experience, which is which is the key thing for me. One of my core tenets of not sucking at this game is play what you're comfortable with when you're um when you're faced with a, a challenge game five of a tournament <laughs> no sounds, yeah. sounds yeah. I'm like in the comfort play there <clears throat> so I, I i just re- reverted to my my 
standard Howard Tull list. I had done some unpacking um, immediately after my my game against Andre, and and we had discussed some stuff. So I was also feeling better that like, okay, my my basic list can score some of these things um, with like set set the trap and and um, secret meetup if I want. Like I don't have to fully depend on flexing my list in order to come into this pool. Uh, you know, just to, to score points in this pool. And and with with Damien on the table, it really is more about not losing the game. Um, you know, play play a game that you don't lose early so that you have a chance to score, um, not come into this game planning to score eight points. Um, because I think if I if I did that, if I was like, Rocketeers everywhere, Rocketeers die, <laughs> I don't score eight points, game goes the other way. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh... Just the risk analysis uh, process there seems seems very very reasonable. So okay, another list building question. This is one that uh, coming off of uh, another question from Personal Glitch on the Discord. And, and again, for listeners, that we you're welcome to join our Discord. Uh, the link uh, invite is going to be in the show notes for sure. And that uh, we will throw uh, as soon as we know people that we're going to be able to do interviews and we know the tournament and which game they're going to be, uh, which round they're going to be looking at, we throw it open for questions. And so a question came in about, do you play fully in keyword and you had in this case, but do you reach outside of the keyword at any point? Um, yeah. And, and if so, when? Like you didn't in this particular list, I guess, but but in general, when when might you with Toll want to go outside of keyword? Yeah, and, and so I, I don't think we read it out at all yet so this like my standard list is tall um artillerist with a coat the cannons of course louisa kingswall watson um watson has a coat um and then two sappers and the guild mage and so that is that is the standard i'm not feeling the need to go out of keyword at all um in large part because gg3 wants to grind um and this list grinds very very well i think um i i mentioned earlier that i have had um struggles sort of outputting damage with cavalier in general and so for the cursed objects round i did bring um melissa which um i didn't do a great job of of playing her and i almost like she ended up turning into a soul stone soul stone sink for me um but she also like deleted three models for for being there um and she's a good she's also has that sweet two four six damage track with the potential for doing some blasts so um if Tull gets out of position or as a backup she can also soak injured and get transmuted into uh, focus and and kind of be that backup damage dealer and and for if you really need to kill stuff fast or you know from multiple points on the board I think having a, an out of keyword pick like that is is worth it. I mean it doesn't have to be Melissa like I've also played around with Pale Rider I've played around with um, Lone Marshall like there's there's options good guns that that shoot shoot good. One I mean the, that Guild Mage seems like it really fits into. The crew nicely there and not just for the uh transmutation trick there like if you weren't able to get that tome because you know for some reason just none come up at all that never happens doesn't happen you churn through so many cards doug you're you're pitching cards yeah you're you're healing up and those little those little heals here and there is just going against it it's a pain in the butt yeah you know run into someone with a guild mage. I'm like, well, I need to kill that guild mage because, oh, such a pain in the ass. For um, any magic players out there, I've I've made the comparison that playing Tull feels like 
playing Dredge um, in Magic the Gathering, where you're just like churning through your deck, trying to get stuff into your discard so you can pick up the tools you need. Um, and it's exactly that, right? Like flipping cards is good because all your good stuff has a TN of five and you can pick up your fives. I think there has been zero turns of Tull in which I haven't been able to fish for the suit I need for one of my low TNs. It is ridiculously consistent. It's, it's, yeah. That is, uh, so I have never heard, uh, I, I would never have guessed that he felt like Dredge. I, I did come into miniature gaming from a magic background and played played Dredge, a lot of Dredge, and played uh, whatever. That was my competitive deck. So that is super intriguing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Got to give this master another look, not just because it's fun for lobbing uh, rounds downrange, but, but if, if this is what Dredge feels like, in um in Malifo, this is that's pretty amazing. Okay. Yeah. He also cool. has a cat, so that is a he plus. does have a cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, can't go wrong with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> outstanding. So already, uh schemes. What what schemes did you end up taking for out of this pool? Um I, I pulled uh Vendetta on um Watson into Loweth. Um my kind of just overall game plan is to try and remove Loweth from the game so that those positive flips aren't hurting me. And um, Watson can throw some shots in with his gun without having to put himself in danger to to try and score that. And then if it gets if things get late, um, then charging in with the with the medical tools is a you know a great way to push damage through at the end. So I like that option. I'm not necessarily the biggest vendetta enjoyer but um when you know you have a big target that you need to to take out and you have um damage on a on a gun like that that you don't have to waste action you know it's it's efficient at that point i can just do what i want to do and and potentially score points from it um the second the second one was set the trap um which just comes down to louisa goes where she wants and she puts scheme markers where she wants it's entirely reasonable for her to be able to put down two scheme markers in a turn after traveling um like six plus inches before she starts um so um and uh she's she's and and we'll we'll talk about this later but her ability to hang out safely doing whatever and then zoom out of the bubble and score points is um a little absurd um and it it gives me a lot of agency with that scheme to score it when i need to which you know vendetta feels a little bit more opportunistic i have to be you know making an attack with watson when i think that i can hit hit him under half and um not get watson in trouble and all this stuff and and set the trap is just a lot a lot safer yeah, the whole the whole vendetta dance of of accidentally hitting a red joker and having to do I kill it and lose the point or you know it's uh, that could be rough. That definitely wasn't a problem here. Like uh, Joel put so many soul, soul stones into keeping Loweth alive, and it was the like it was it was a grind for sure. But yeah, it's it's scary, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. So, um, once you see, uh, Joel's list and, uh, any thoughts on, on what you were facing there, uh, on his potential game plan or the schemes that he was taking or any, any kind of insights off of that, um, before you started playing or even early on in the game? I wasn't thinking too hard about what he was scheming against at that point. Um, like I said, 
I was more thinking, I just need to not lose right away so that we can actually have a game. Um, and so the things that were on my mind were um, keeping Loeth and Damien separated, because um, the absolute worst thing that could happen is Damien um, putting the irreducible trigger onto something important um, and then chaining that with a bunch of positive flips to damage and just melting something that I don't want melted. I also, well, I don't want anything melted, but you know, um, he has his, he has the luxury of picking whatever he wants at that point. The other thing that actually did, uh, kind of worry me was the, was the captain. Um, because with my main damage dealing being a focused up tall, having that, um, aura that reduces, um, projectile actions, um, is a pretty significant cut to the the damage potential right it, it reduced my target you know I, i'm not going to be able to punch someone for seven um if they're they're shaving off a, a bunch of damage off the top um so captain also became a key piece and joel's list for me to keep separated from the, the bunt from the from the group um because as soon as captain was in there my damage my damage just tanked do you do you like that as a tech pick against toll the captain is just not a model that i'm used to seeing at all ever and certainly not in a Damien crew and so uh, it just uh, it sounded like it was a little scary as you were looking at it uh and certainly changed your game plan a little bit yeah i i think like there were turns that i wanted to i wanted to go heavy salvo um grenade launcher grenade launcher that instead had to be salvo 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 this is why the game turned into such a sort of patient one um because i didn't have that opportunity to actually bloody his nose until like turn three Okay. No, that's cool. Neat, neat tech pick. And uh, yeah, it's just cool to see the captain period outside of a, uh, outside of a Tony crew, I think. Yeah, I, I think it paid off. I think it was a good hire. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. So what I want to do here is just kind of, yeah, turn it over to you, Ambrose, with just uh, key lines of play, key decision points, whether it was on the table or in your hand. Uh, what were kind of the key moments of the of the game and how were you able to capitalize on those? Um, so I mentioned that like de deployment, having my, my left flank free, um, having my forest bubble, um, really, um, really paid off for me. So, you know, with captain there, Lohith with his aura and Damien, I spent a lot of my early actions, just heavy, heavy salvoing, um, to split them up as much as possible. What I didn't realize at the time is how well, I had chosen his deployment zone um, for having terrain that I could actually heavy salvo his pieces behind. Um, so I was, a, I think I got more value than average based on the terrain setup. Um, when I recently replayed this matchup, I, I kind of tried to do a repeat, but I wasn't quite able to line up a heavy salvo that separated Loeth and Damien enough. And so, it, you know, that, that was a very different game where, Damien's throwing attacks into me with as many positive flips as he as he wants um and that went terribly <laughs> for me <laughs> um surprisingly uh right um so so that that heavy salvo and the fact that I had some terrain advantage where I could shove these guys behind pieces that was blocking line of sight and then they were spending often multiple actions to get back into a position where their auras were relevant um that I think that really defined the the early game, and one of the the key plays that I think um, 
really freed me up to score um, was on the on that first turn to score covert ops. Um, normally, I try and pull stuff off of my sappers, um, right? Take an ops token off of one of the little guys who's going to die um, and and get value out of that. Um, but since that left flank was free, um, I was like, you know, I'm I'm going to sit on these. They're going to be fine over here. Farm me low cards and hang out and be cool. Um, and I just decided to to take the token off of Louisa. So her her action was just like pick up some scheme markers that didn't really matter because Joel is able to replay them that turn. But she was then in a position to score her covert ops on turn two, um, which meant that she was then free to cruise wherever she needed to. She could rampage without having to worry about yeah, the covert she, token. Yeah. yeah. Wait, Louisa can get anywhere she wants to be? <laughs> Literally anywhere. <laughs> Literally anywhere. Terrain, what's that? She is she is wild. Um, so her her big scoring was at the end of turn three when she single handedly scored set the trap for me, and she could do that because doesn't have a token. She can go where she wants, um, and she ended up. Um, this was let's see. I had um, started putting some damage into Loeth that turn. So King's Wall had left the bubble um, to bring the bring the front line to Joel's crew. And so Louisa charges King's Wall, flips to the other side of him with the place on her attack. She's able to drop a ski marker and then zoom out to um, claim the land and, and drop a second one to just single-handedly score that point. Um, and I, I think that really... That set up the that set up the um, the game from there. I was also able to get my first point of vendetta in that sort of exchange when when King's Wall moved forward. So I I really appreciate that early ops coming off of Louisa that had me the freedom to to focus on scoring once I was in a good position to do so. Nice, good lines. So how about uh, MVP model for the game? Uh, was it Louisa? It actually wasn't. It's King's Wall. Okay, just be in the rock. Yep. Um, without King's Wall, I wouldn't have had the time to do any of that, right? He's in the concealment. He's got an extra neg to his um, to damage flips from Watson, um, which puts so much pressure. You know, um, uh, Joel was having to spend focus and or stones just to try and get damage into the King's Wall. And he took damage, right? Like, I think turn two, um, he got down to two health. But with um, the totems and with the the guild mage, you know, he was back up to like six by the end of that turn. And that that position in the forest was a big part of, well, one, and keeping Lohith away, right? If Lohith had been there, I think that King's Wall probably died turn two. But um, splitting them up, getting them in the forest meant that that line was firm and it gave me the all the time in the world. Nice, nice. So, alrighty. So, sh- shift into after the game. Unless, any questions about during the game? Quick question with uh, Louisa. You're saying um, she uses her reposition trigger then? Uh, so, her, her main melee attack has you place within an inch of the target. Yeah, I didn't read that part. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. When you're when you're 50 mil base. I skipped the damage. I didn't read the first part of it. <laughs> it's it's incredible. Um, so, yeah. So, she was able to you know, raise. She had her six inches of movement to get into charge king's wall and then he's a 40 mil base and she's a 50 so that's all this extra movement on the other side um she gets a and of course don't mind me so she doesn't care that she's in the middle of a scrum and then claim the land gets her right out of engagement to drop another ski marker into the back line that's great it's terrible that's why you read the cards <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah 
<laughs> RTFC, Doug. <laughs> so, all right. So, something that we really like doing here is uh, uh, going through and looking back at the game afterwards and and thinking of it as advice for um, kind of three different levels. Bottom, a bottom third player, uh, somebody maybe facing Toll for the first time, uh, who's just kind of hoping to keep the differential low uh, if they're facing you. What kind of advice would would you give for somebody facing you uh, with Toll for the first time? I think th- this applies to Tull, but it also applies to most bubble crews in the game, um, which is that if you don't know exactly how that bubble works, don't waste any actions trying to fight it, right? The, the easiest win for that sort of crew is for an opponent who's unfamiliar with all of the little layers of defensive tech that you have to come in and just throw attacks into it. If you're not intimately familiar with how to pick that apart, don't waste the time. Don't play a fighting game stay on the edges of the you know just don't fight just score and uh yeah i think i think that the the best way to throw a game into that sort of crew is to just flip cards for the sake of flipping cards that's great advice okay um shifting to kind of like like a mid-tier player somebody who uh is may actually be able to to beat you is at least hoping for for giving you a challenging fight what kind of advice would you give to them um, I, I think that at some point, depending on the pool, but in, in most cases, um, Tull is going to have to break his bubble to, to score some points eventually. Um, so try and control activation order or whatever you have to do to punish that as much as possible, right? If Luis is afraid to come out and play, um, then that really limits uh, limits my ability to to do things. If you do know how the the bubble works, or if you have the tools to counteract it, then pressuring inside the bubble and so that the models don't want to come out and score um, is is really good. But you have to know what the what the key pieces of tech are, right? Like, I think that both Damians have really good things to to do it, and I'm I'm not. There's definitely other stuff out there, right? But it's it's a pretty slim list of models that have. Wait, wait, wait! Damian has a tool to deal with something. <laughs> I am shocked. You're crazy, right? Uh, such a niche pick would would have the, the required required text. Um, uh, yeah, so I mean, like with with Damien, specifically this uh, uh, um, blasts can of course hurt, but the problem with Tull is that he's adding neg flicks to your attack damage. Um, injured is is always a good thing into into a bubble like this when you know. King's Wall is trying to say, fight my defense. If you have a way to hit the willpower or start adding some injured, then then things go a lot better. <laughs> so I just heard you say blast Damien. and uh, injured. Yeah. I'm like, oh, Damien. well, that's Damien and that's Damien. Oh, yeah. wait, and positive flips. I'm like, oh, this literally. <laughs> it, it literally is Damien, yeah. Um... <laughs> Uh, so, so the, what, what I really what I really want the takeaway here to be is like if you know you have the tools, um, you know, regardless if it's tall or a different bubble, if you know exactly how to counter the bubble, um, then punishing the bubble is worth it. Um, but if you don't, then punish the flanks. Right? Somehow they have to score. Punish that. I think in the in this case, it was really clear to me that my safe left flank was just such a relief. And so coming at a bubble from both sides so that they don't have a space on the board that they can ignore is probably very important. And and if your crew can pull off a split like that, it's, it's probably worth doing. So here's a question. This is the second episode that we've uh, recorded talking about Tull. 
where the King's Wall was the MVP of the Toll Crew. How do you crack that nut? How do you, like, how would you deal with the King's Wall? Because he seems very crucial to most any times that I've heard uh, people talk about playing Harold Toll. If you're not an Arcanist player and Damien isn't an option. I, I want to add to that, that like the, the King's Wall is also super ignorable. He's not like he's providing all of these defensive bonus. But if you see a great opportunity to kill the totems or kill Louisa or kill sappers and just shrink the action economy that, uh, that the Cavalier player has, I think that's also super valid. Like not saying like Andre is hundred percent right. Right. Like defense seven is a bluff. I don't want to ever cheat defense on King's wall if I don't have to, but also just take the take the stuff that's out of the bubble. The bubble is very, very tight, right? It's a two inches for uh, King's Wall and it's two inches for Warning Growl. So something's going to be out. And if you have the mobility or the reach to take that out, just do that. Killing the Totems is, is fantastic because it hits resupply and it hits the TN on the um, Assault Marker tools. Yep, sounds good. So how about uh, top tier, the uh, shifting day for if you were giving yourself advice, what do you wish you'd done differently or... Uh, what, what what advice would you give to somebody who is who is in that top third, a podium kind of position guy? And again, congratulations to you. Thank you. Um, I think that I am probably a middle third player um, who can occasionally spike a top third. So like, let's let's couch this discussion within that um, analysis. I think that I got a lot of value out of being able to play patiently, and I think that a very good player um, it would probably have been able to throw some wrenches in my in my plan by taking the bubble apart, you know, tackling those sappers on the left flank, just kind of putting more pressure on, right? Letting letting Tull play a patient game is is not the thing that you want to do. I also I kind of wish that I personally had played uh faster. Um we we did end up um getting to turn we 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 got through turn four um, and it was at it was at a pretty equal place. I don't think the I think that the the time on the clocks pretty much exactly matched when Doug called last turn. So neither one of us was shocked that that happened. You know, it was a it was a fair game despite it not going to, to turn five. But turn four was an amazing turn for me, where I had a good hand um, at the start of the turn, and I think Joel's was pretty mediocre. So I was able to kill Loeth, um, and then you know, sort of stall out, right? I killed Loeth, got my activation control, and then stall out the rest of the turn with a pretty good sense that this is going to be the last turn. Um, but like if this, if my hand had been shit on turn four, um, I don't think I could have, you know, won the game from that point the way I, yeah. the way I did here. Um, and, and, and giving myself, you know, I was in a good position to be playing this patient game, giving myself turn five meant I had two chances at securing that. So I, I think that playing at a pace to guarantee a turn five would have increased my, um, chances of winning this match. Yeah. It makes, makes great sense. How about the terrain pieces? You were talking about how, how much the terrain kind of seemed to matter to an advanced toll players or stuff now that you watch for on terrain when you're picking side, you know, if you end up attacker, does toll auto win? I mean, is it that on the right board? Is it, is it that much of a, of a consideration? What are those kind of tips? Um, I think there's probably boards where that could be true. 
uh, this this definitely taught me how much I love that center forest, right? I'm able to I'm able to stack an extra negative flip on your incoming attacks, um, which essentially meant that King's Wall is your only target. Um, and so I'm a big fan of that. Control center is what I want to do anyways. The other thing that really stood out is that the, these terrain pieces are big enough to be obnoxious to move around, but small enough that I can easily shove you through it with heavy salvo. Um, so I, you know, what I ran into in my more recent game is that I could shove the something through the terrain, but it actually didn't cost them any as much to get back into position with their or as or the train was too big and I couldn't shove them through it. Um, so I I this kind of landed in a sweet spot where I was able to super disrupt Captain, super disrupt Loeth, and break up his sort of offensive bubble that he was trying to put together. And it's very lovely terrain to shove people through anyways. You know, I mean look at that. Kid. It's beautiful. That's 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 how they get the best view of the lovingly crafted terrain is when you get ghost bombed through it um <laughs> ghost bombed i love it so alrighty. <laughs> so having gone through all of that do we want to launch into the lbo questions you know like being a to and i think that there's some good discussion there yeah i figure that's a good time to also then uh talk about clocks talk about you know setting things up as a to because you know ambrose you know does the to went up in the uh, pacific northwest exactly i to'd lvo i just wanted to make sure that it was a conscious decision before i drug us into another you know another half an hour 45 minutes or hour god only knows how long so yeah i guess we decided to have andre take the lead on the discussion regarding toing and clocks in Malifaux. So take it away, Andre. So I really wanted to get kind of y'all's take on this, Ambrose and Doug, as as tos. Uh, and we'll start with Ambrose, and we'll have Doug answer. So as a to, what is one thing that you like love to have players do during the event to kind of like help you run it smoothly? Is there something like that for you? Absolutely. Number one thing I want players to do is read the player pack that I put out. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Really? Um, it, it's shocking, I know, um, but uh, it, it answers a lot of questions before they come up, and it's, uh, it's, a, great, it's a great thing. Um, the other one is uh, uh, with Longshanks or Mega Tools and a lot of other stuff, there's more and more stuff that, um, players can do to self-serve digitally. So um, Longshanks is giving table numbers, it's giving pairings, and players can come in and fill out their, their info um, at the end of at the end of their game um, and, and report their score themselves. And, and anything like that that self-service takes so much stress and time off of the TO experience. It's it's just lovely to have those players who read the info, look at the tools they have available and do as much to to do it themselves. And and as much as I would love to be available for every person to ask answer every question specifically when you're doing a full day event or God forbid a two day event, um, you just don't have time to give everyone the attention they deserve. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose I'll start reading player packets then. Um, <laughs> Look, I didn't I, want to call anybody out, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I um, respect that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, how about you, Doug? What's what's something you like the players do to help you run a tournament smooth? 
Well, I definitely agree with the uh, the player packet bit there. Um, and when it comes to doing a two-day event like, you know, LVO or the Lone Star Fowdown, uh, that's out. It, it may not be in the uh, finalized, this is exactly what it is, and I may tweak it a little bit before the end. But it at least gives kind of the guidelines as to, hey, what the proxy policy is going to be, um, what the timing is going to be, uh, how how long rounds are going to be. So like at LVO, we ran with 15-minute longer rounds uh, than we do at our local tournaments. We did uh, two-and-a-half-hour rounds plus 15-minute setup times. Uh, our local tourney, we do uh, two-hour and 15-minute rounds plus 15-minute setup times, which over the course of the day, we don't do the, the extra 15 minutes for the locals because, well, that's 45 minutes longer. We're already running pretty late into the day. But it's something like LVO. We can have a, a little bit of a longer day. We're getting an earlier start, and we know that's why they're there. They don't have to, you know, drive all the way back to Austin or Dallas or San Antonio. Yeah. So, so basically what you're saying is uh, in order to get in on that information, it's important that the players read the player pack. But now, say, for like our um, local tournaments, I don't put out a full player packet. I put information on the event posting, and I just give you guys the little slip of paper uh, for the strategies and schemes. Something that helps players play faster and therefore, you know, get to round five is if they come in knowing what those pools are ahead of time. And I think that's a good advice for newer players. I know that most of the experienced players, if I haven't posted them well in advance, you know, certain people will, you know, go, Hey Doug, Hey, well, when, when are we getting those, uh, when are we getting those pools? Hey, Hey, <laughs> well, when are we getting those pools, Doug? Because you're prepping up for them. You're doing, putting in some practice reps on them or at the very least you're, you know, doing a little bit of theory foe around, well, this is what crew I might want to bring for this. So you're saying that kind of like that pre-game understanding of what all the schemes and pools are going to be even helps you as a TO because they're more ready for it? It does, because then um, they're getting deeper in the game. And that when it comes to complaints that I ever get about tournaments, it's the, oh, I could have, you know, I could have taken that if we just went one more turn. I've heard that so many times. Where it's the, oh, if we could have just gone, you know, one more turn, it would have been a totally different outcome. And if you're getting to turn five, well then, hey, there is no longer that we could have just gone one more turn. So that's nice. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and speaking of time management, uh, for LVO, we had clocks uh, present, but we used them in a non-binding manner. Uh, would you be willing to like unpack the process that led you to include clocks in the first place? And how did you feel about it like in practice? So, um, and this will feed into, you know, Ambrose, who is, I consider the the biggest cheerleader for clocks that I have heard of. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, that clocks have had a contentious history in Malifaux that people either are, yes, clocks, clocks now, we need clocks, or heck no, I'm never using a clock. But I happen to have a conversation uh, locally. Well, first off, Ambrose had posted something to uh, the Weird Place Facebook group saying uh, it was basically his guidelines as to how they've been using the clocks in the Pacific Northwest. 
And I looked this over and go, wow, this is really well thought out. And it pretty much answers all of those questions that I've had regarding clocks. Like, well, you know, you make decisions on your opponent's uh, turn. How do you deal with clocks? Well, guess what? The answer is in there. It's whoever is thinking you're on their time. It gets more in depth than that. But if someone is thinking, that's the, where the clock is. But so that, that post was there. And then, Andre, you happened to uh, bring up, hey, hey, Doug, have you ever thought about using clocks in our local events? And I was like, well, I hadn't. But, you know, there was this thing that Ambrose had posted. Now, I didn't know at the time that you were using uh, clocks in the Malifaux World Series. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, uh, Andre, you're someone whose uh, opinion I deeply respect. Because when it comes down to it, you are not only a strong player, but you're also a very fair player. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anyone who has ever said, oh, man. I just don't like playing against that Andre guy. Now I've heard people say, oh man, I don't like playing against Damien. But literally during your Damien crusade, I've never heard anyone say, oh man, I don't like playing against Andre. They always refer to it as playing against Damien. And so it is that it is not a negative experience playing against you, the player. It is a rough experience playing against Damien. Sure. So you're someone whose opinion I really respect. And then during one of our local game nights uh, on Thursday at Dragon's Lair, uh, one of my new players said, hey, have you ever thought of using clocks? And so I'm like, well, oh, did you see that post that uh, Ambrose had made in a weird place? And he just looked at me and goes, what's a weird place? So I'm like, okay. And so then I got some more information on it there because not going to lie. I've been very anti-clock for a long time. It was, it just, I felt like something that would not fit into Malifaux well, but Ambrose's delightful breakdown on, this is how we get it to work. And then you bringing it up, you know, top tier player, bringing it up as well as then a brand new player, bringing it up. It's like, Hmm, this is something I need to look at. Yeah, and the reason I decided to do non-legally binding clocks was because, first off, I did not want to just spring that on people, and I know that really the Pacific Northwest is where they are in person using them... 100% of the time. 100% of the time. I don't know anywhere else that is using them legally binding. Yeah. We are using them 100% of the time, legally binding, every game night, every tournament. Had you started that, Ambrose? Had you started that out of the, like, in real life first, or had that kind of grown out of the Vassal experience? It was in real life first, um, and uh, the the store that we play out of, um, Aegis Games in Bellingham, um, they have a bunch of really great uh, hobbyists um, who run the shop and forty um, k players, and they're they're doing you know all this tournament level hobby stuff, and so they're playing in all the the big forty k events. Um, and so when I started talking to them about building the Malifaux scene and wanting to run tournaments, they asked me how time management worked in, in Malifaux. And, um, you know, I, I said, well, and, and this is kind of me repeating the, the rhetoric that I had heard, what, what Doug is alluding to, that like the Malifaux community was 
very against it, right? And so I sort of repeated some of that, like, well, Malifaux is too complicated. We can't do it because of the alternating activations and all this and all that. And their response was, look, if you want to run fair tournaments, your game needs to be on a clock. And so, you know, um, <laughs> and that was kind of a that was kind of an awakening moment to, for me, right? Where it was like, um, you know, for, as a rule set, 40k doesn't have the um, most it's it's not considered the most competitive game right like it's a it's a game that a lot of people love and it's fun and the models are great and all these things but from my perspective at that point i was like if these 40k if these competitive 40k players are telling me that my game needs to be on clocks to be a fair competitive game to be fair I, yeah i think we're behind the times here <laughs> yeah i don't think of 40k as like the the paragon of fairness you know right right <laughs> But um, but they had some, you know, they had some good anecdotes about, you know, games that they were playing where, where, you know, they had a bad, bad experience because there was no time how, you know, it's a, it's a tool for self-improvement, you know, you get better if you can make your decisions quickly. Um, it's a tool to um, come into a tournament with, with some confidence, if you know that you can play your crew in the hour 15 that your clock allots you and it doesn't matter what your opponent's doing because you know that you can play your game and score your eight points and um and then you know they they broke down the rules for me and i I had this realization that clock does not mean death clock um it just ends the action for one player um but if that person has already achieved a commanding lead on the game um that doesn't mean that they've they've lost just because they've clocked out right at the end of the game, it still comes down to who scores the most points. Yeah. For, for me, that was one of the things that really changed my mind on it. Cause when I heard clocks, I was thinking death clock. And then I read that I go, Oh, wait a minute. Cause I mean, one of the things I love to tell players is that, Hey, you can still win the game. Even if you have no models left on the table. Yeah. And like you said there about the speeding uh, the game up when Zach, uh, the new player asked me about uh, using clocks. Well, he was thinking about competitive play, but he'd been doing it with another one of our new players when they met mm-hmm. up and just play games so that they could both try to speed up their games because they saw how much faster the experienced players were playing. Yeah. And they said, hey, you know, let's do something to make us play faster so we can hopefully, you know, climb the ranks and get up to the the speed level that people like Andre or Jonathan are playing at. Zach and Christian started using clocks just to speed up their games. And even in, even if you're just doing it for friendly, it does help speed you up. I know the first game I played, it was a, it was a rude awakening for me for playing at a friendly game mm. because... I I clocked out and my opponent had 20 minutes left on his clock. Mm-hmm. And it's a player who normally I think of as not a fast player, but I clocked out with him having 20 minutes left. I'm like, oh, I need to tighten my game. Yeah. In in terms of how I actually brought it into the World World Series, I was I started doing it locally. Um, and then I just kind of started picking off my other committee members one by one. Um, so like Nick Westbrook had a, had a bad clock time experience last at last year, last year's LVO. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, have I look at this document that I have, this solves all your problems. And so then Nick was on board and, um, Ben from Nebraska was, um, you know, very anti-clock and then he had a bad time experience. Um, and it was kind of one of these situations where he ended a game and he was like, I got, I got 
you know, one third of the time that we had. We had a three hour round and I got to play one hour and my opponent got to play two hours. And how am I supposed to win with that? And I slid Ben, slid, slid Ben the document and, and converted him. And so like I started picking off the committee members and then we, we, um, uh, tested it out for an event on the World Series, and it, it worked pretty well. And so now, it, now it's just the standard there. That, that leads me to um, a thing about you know doing TO things is that most of the times when people come to me afterwards talking about a negative experience during the tournament, it's the hey, so I think you know Jimmy there was slow playing me a little bit, and you know I that it Jimmy. was a bad I, I got fucking it. Jimmy, he's the worst. <laughs> But it's that that tends to be one of the things that people bring up after the fact. And, well, clocks, you know, avoid that. And also, if you're new to running tournaments, this is uh, bringing, you know, a, an aside point there. Um, at LVO, I made sure beforehand I gave what I like to call the designated asshole speech. Because if you are the TO, you are that day's designated asshole. That ultimately... You're the person who is there to avoid your players having a negative player experience, if at all possible. And that I try to say to the people, bring things up to me when they happen, not after the fact. Yeah. Because, and this is a speech I give before, you know, big tournaments. My local players know for the, uh, the monthlies. Yeah, that's what you do. Bring it up during the game. I'll, I will take care of it things will get fixed because I can't fix things afterwards. The thing about like slow play in particular is that, well, one, it, it if you call somebody out on that, it definitely, asshole speech or no, not, it, it puts somebody in an uncomfortable position to, yep. to tell the other person, hey, I think you're playing too slow. Um, but even if somebody does that, from a TO's perspective, it is so subjective and time consuming to moderate a game for slow play. Yeah. Um, that if that gets called um, and I have to like now watch almost at least one person's activations, but ideally both person's activations, that's taking me away from the rest of the the stuff that I need to do as a, as a TO. Oh, for sure. And, and I'm not a, I'm not a particularly fast player. I, when I was testing this, I was like, I'm going to play summoners. I did a bunch of dreamer reps on clocks um, just to see, can I do it? And yeah, it worked out, but I clocked out all the time and it was still fine. But like, I'm not point is not very fast. And like the first time I played against Andre, he, he knew his shit so well and was playing so fast that I felt like I had to speed up my play to keep up with him. And just played like absolute garbage because of it, right? And and that same matchup when I have a clock and I know exactly how much time I'm allowed to spend to think about my stuff means that I can like bring a better game into that scary um, Texas meta carnage, pun intended. Yeah. You're welcome. Hey, and the, the, the upside of, you know, Andre playing really fast is that when he, uh, you know, finishes up his game, you know, an hour and a half early, he can then come over uh, when I'm actually playing a game and point out all the ways that I fucked up. Yeah. Hypothetically. 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 Uh, all the ways I screwed up the rules. Seriously, though, no, great, great, great discussion that this has been, and it's super cool having on, you know, everybody who's been at LVO there, um, as well as uh, a couple uh, uh, absolute top tier uh, TOs. So, so thank you. Uh, some great discussions. Um, any final comments on clocks from any of you guys based on either the LVO experience or just 
the rest of the world. So yeah, the the only thing that is keeping me from making it binding right now is having enough clocks. And that is something that, you know, I just need to order more clocks. I've got five clocks right now, which is enough for a 10-player tournament, but we consistently have more than 10 players. And if I'm going to make them binding, I do need to be able to provide them for everyone there. Like I said before, I was very long opposed to clocks, and then I ran them as non-binding at the uh, at LVO because... I was like, oh, no, I don't want to just spring this on people. And I had not had a chance to try it out. It went well at LVO. This is where this is where everybody note how much nicer Doug is than me, because I was like, hey, Bellingham, I want to try this out. So we're going to do this now. And I, I'm sure I was a little nicer than that, but it, like, <laughs> I just made it happen as soon as I liked it and people were doing it like that was the, the standard for our tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's awesome so we're definitely moving that way here in uh in texas and so we'll have lone star and pacific northwest uh being being the standard there so oh yeah yeah L- lone star foe down by then we will be running that legally binding clocks so long as i can get you know enough clocks for uh march probably will be running those uh legally binding for uh the march local tournament here as well the one thing that my uh, guys have said consistently for the locals is that, oh yeah, round one, they all totally use the clocks. Round two, about 50% of them use the clocks. Round three, one or two table use the clocks because they forgot. But if it's binding, you don't, you don't forget, forget yeah. that. You don't forget. Up, up here, up here, it takes one game. Yeah. Like the bandaid is ripped off after one game if, if it's binding. And we can remind each other so, all right, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, great discussion and super, super, super appreciated, Ambrose. Uh, do you have any plugs before we wrap this up? Uh, me. Do I have plugs? Uh, yes, perfect. Um, uh, yes, my plugs are um, to check out the Malfo World series, um, which takes place on Discord. Um, we've got um, Andre is organizing it with me as well. Um we have amazing players from around the globe playing and playing Malifaux events on Vassal. Um, this is our third season of doing it, and we have sort of moved from the former public Discord for Vassal into our own space so we can moderate things better and try and um, make the experience cooler and more special for the players who participate. Um, so there'll be a link, um, but it is a um, bit.ly link with um, capital MWS dash lowercase discord. Um, we'll take you to that discord. And even if you're not interested in playing, um, it's a cool place to hear the chatter from different uh, places around the world, how they play Malifaux. You can spectate games that are happening on Basel if you want. Um, all sorts of cool stuff is happening there go play malfa with us yeah absolutely it is a very very well moderated discord as well Thank you. That, uh, i appreciate uh, that super impressive the the coding that you have set up the suggestion fields the, everything the the back end of that is very very impressive as we uh kind of churn along with the students of conflict uh, discord i'm i'm consistently going like ooh and ah at mws so uh, my hat's off to you and the rest of the committee for sure note to self i should go join that <laughs> you should <laughs> 
Clay, if you have any questions, you can hit me up at any time about this one. I got a question for you, Ambrose. Um, during LVO, you mentioned that you were going to be having a tournament coming up uh, out in uh, Washington. Yes, um, this will be up in Bellingham. It is the last weekend of April, which I believe is the 29th and 30th. Um, it'll be four or five rounds, depending on participation. Um, but um, it would be awesome to have some some travelers come visit. And I, I you know, I think we're, we're you know, if, if it's just locals, it's going to be around 10 or 12 players. But if we started having some more, uh, um, more people travel for that, we could could get those numbers up and um bellingham's a beautiful place um it's gonna be an amazing store um with awesome terrain awesome tables and uh there'll be bonanza brawl on um one of those nights to make it at worth people's time to come out and hang out with us do you have a link for that i do yes Awesome. We will add that to the show notes. It's in the show That's notes. It's in the already. show notes. It's yeah. totally in the show notes already. We're not, you know, coming up with this after the fact. We're well prepared. There we go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ambrose. Very much appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for the clocks. Oh, I'm I'm excited to get our people clock trained. <laughs> there we go. Heck yeah. Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malfo terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! Might have lost Andre. We lost Andre. Oh, I inflated his head so much that he just went floating away. Yeah. <laughs> Exploded right out of the right out of the chat window.